Thanks to our sponsor today, A.W. Jenkinson Forest Products. Market leaders in the forestry industry, offering everything from site clearances to collection of wood chip nationwide. Wherever your arb needs, A.W. Jenkinson has a fleet of over 900 vehicles, including mobile chippers, grinders and walking floor trailers. Check out all of their services at awjenkinson.co.uk. Thanks to our sponsor today, Arbalista, UK's leading business finance broker for the Arb industry. If you're looking to finance a new or used machine, get an instant finance estimate from Arbalise. Find hundreds of trusted machines at arbalise.co.uk or source a machine yourself from any dealer or private seller. Arbalise will spread the cost of ownership with competitive affordable monthly payments at a market-leading low fixed rate. Play online 24-7 at arbalise.co.uk. Arbalise is 100% impartial and 100% Arb. Welcome to episode 29 of the All Things Are podcast. We have a very special episode today. Something that has been in the works for several months, we have been invited to come down to the famous Malt House in Gloucestershire, which can only mean one thing. I am joined by the big dog in the industry, Mr. John Parker from the Arb Association. John, thank you very much for inviting us down. Thank you. I'm not sure about big dog, but yeah, no, thank you. Nice to see you. Like nothing goes through arboriculture without John's approval. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but yeah, it's an absolutely lovely house. It's house, office. Yeah, it's great. It's a lovely location. It's a fantastic building. Definitely a bit old and a bit weird, but it's brilliant. And we it's like it. very arboriculture. Yeah. It's like you, you pull into the back and go, right, the office could be there, the yard could be out back, the chip and the log pile could be over absolutely. there. Absolutely. We don't want anything to... Uh, streamlined and tidy yeah. it's nice to have a bit of character so where because you, you've not always been based here you moved here not that long ago wasn't it and then where were you beforehand well the arb association's been here for about 10 years or something like that before that I was up at cheltenham but that's long before i was involved yeah with it. yeah so been here for quite a while thank you years ago so my first question i like to ask everyone um again i've Anyone who's looking for a different podcast to listen to, the High Performance Podcast by Jake Humphreys and Damien was absolutely fantastic podcast to listen to. So my take on their opening question is, what does arboriculture mean to you? What does it mean to me? Uh, it means tree care in a sort of literal sense. Um, it is a very important profession to me. It's where I've sort of found my niche, I guess, in, in my career. Um, and it's something that not enough people understand or know what it is. That's one of the big challenges that I think we face. But for me, it's my sort of my profession. It's my my hobby and my passion. And, you know, I think it's very unique, probably not unique, but very unusual. The people who work in arboriculture, uh, you don't just fall into it. You know, you do it because no. you've got an interest in it, because yeah. you've got a passion. And that's one of the things that makes it such a special uh, profession. What age were you when you first heard about this industry? Oh, quite late on really i was probably about 25 26 yeah. before i even knew it was a thing at no point before had anyone told me that there might be a career to be made from trees in any of the many different ways that we know you can make a career in trees uh so yeah i've been knocking around for a long time doing different things before i knew it was something yeah. that, that i could do because it was 17 i originally started off in horticulture <laughs> and it was the case we were on the um, lord derby's estate just outside nosley and i seen these lads in the trainer thought well, like, what what is what is that? And when it's art culture, then couldn't even pronounce it at the yeah. time. Um, they explained it to me, and I went, "I think I'd rather be playing with chainsaws than playing with spades." So I got I got started. I went to college, got all my, my qualifications, and then moved off into the East Midlands. Everyone's heard that story a number of times. And um, one question I actually asked anyone: When was the first time you climbed a tree? 
in a sort of a ropes and doing it properly. No, way, childish way, like risking like a limb. Um, good. I climbed plenty of trees when yeah. I was little. Definitely, <laughs> I got in trouble for climbing trees at school. I know that. My grandparents had an old apple tree in their garden. I remember used to climb as well. So uh, yeah, young. I don't know what yeah. age, but young. Because I think like everyone comes from that boyish outdoor background of just if my hands aren't muddy, you, you've not played out long enough. Yeah, well, boys and girls, I think boys like to get their hands muddy, but yeah, definitely, it's a, it's a, um, it's a great thing to be able to do when you're a child. To, and I think there's been a lot too much emphasis in few over years of, of risk and worrying about yeah. children climbing trees. You know, obviously, we've got to make sure people don't hurt themselves. But equally, climbing trees is one of the ways that people learn about risk management themselves yeah. when they're young. Well, it's like technology has also taken taking the front seat where going outside doing stuff in the outdoors you go to parks and you see kids to like instagram like gotta get selfies it's like just <laughs> just go enjoy nature just yeah. listen to it just like people forget you go to a park and go, it's really quiet in a park yeah because it's nature you're not there you've not got your phone pinging off every five minutes yeah it's really important that people still yeah. do that what is your favorite tree species or individual both Okay, well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It's it's like picking your your favourite child. Yeah. Everyone can do that, really. There's nobody admits to it. But um, <laughs> all sorts of different species, I think, are great. I mean, I always have a soft spot for London planes. I love London plane tree. Spend a lot of time working in London. I think they sort of give an entire city a real character. Yeah. So I think London planes are awesome for all sorts of reasons. It is pretty hard to beat uh, an old, you know, ancient oak. That's a difficult thing to beat. There's something absolutely magical about them. If I had to absolutely pick one, I'm, I might I might go for the yew. I think the yew That's is a pretty different. special tree. Yeah. Um, I think it's, uh, apart from just being incredible and beautiful, there's such cultural and spiritual significance yeah. with the yew. It's a really, uh, really special one. So, But I could pick it. You can ask me again tomorrow. Yeah, I'll give you a different one. answer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. some reason, ash trees have always appealed to mm-hmm. me. It's like at the moment with the current dieback, it's like... Oh, I've got another Dutch helm on our hands at the moment. It's it's heartbreaking to see because you go out and we see contractors at the moment, and we're talking acres and acres of trees that are just getting taken yeah. clean out. Yeah, it's a, it's a worrying one. Uh, you know, the the message that the association's been trying to get across to landowners and tree managers is it's trying to make a proportionate response and yeah. it's making sure that we're not preemptively removing trees that aren't yet diseased because they're the trees that are going to give us our future genetic diversity for the ash to recover. So we want to avoid a kind of knee-jerk reaction where people are just taking down every ash tree because there may be a risk that in the future they'll get mm-hmm. ash die back. It's that blanket felling to where you can go to sites and you go, hang on, the dieback's on the far side. Right, You just do a basic tree survey and you'll notice between that section and this section, it's not... It's rare, but if it happens, it happens. But you've got quite a lot of different species in between to reduce that mm-hmm. effect on coming over. But again, landowners, they have to take that risk and go, and it's safer to me to fell these 800 to 1,000 trees than to have one tree come down on one pierce and have a million-pound lawsuit against them. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one to get people to, to balance that out. But again, it's all part of the role of the arboriculturalists is to try and educate people and explain to them that it's not just about risk, it's about benefits as well. Yeah, because I noticed one thing that I love to see this year after the, I can't remember what storm we've just had, but we had that many at the start of the year. You were promoting the biodiversity. So if the trees come down mm-hmm. and if you can, leave it instead yeah. of making the landscape look nice and clean. Yeah, we, we do a lot of commercial, a lot of domestic stuff. And there's been times where we could have left habitat poles, we could have left the timber on the ground to make wildlife habitats. And the clients are like, no, we, we want it to look clean. Yeah. It's like, 
You're not helping nature. First you've asked us to take the tree down, and now you're asking us to take it all away. Yeah, again, it's sort of educating the general public, I suppose, and uh, people do often like things to be nice and clean and tidy and perfect, but yeah. we know that's not the best thing for biodiversity, and there's so much value in not just deadwood on the ground, but standing deadwood as well, that we need to try and make sure that's retained. Yeah, because you could go to... We've got a local park near us, Heaton Park. It's like, it's massive, absolutely massive. And you walk around, and I may see out of... There must be about 10,000 trees there, two or three habitat poles. Mm. There's a lot of deadwooded type of trees that are still there, but they've gone they've gone past being useful for the environment. Yeah. They're that rotted out. A bird couldn't live in them or such or anything like that. It's a shame to see like very little planning from local councils to go into areas such as Heaton Park and to make those decisions. But then I say it is difficult for councils as well because they've got to balance out, as you say, the risk. They've got to balance yeah. out the, the expectations of the general public. And a lot of the time the general public want to see a really nicely manicured, clean, tidy park. Okay. And it, the local council is going to be under huge amounts of pressure, budgetary pressure, reputational pressure. And it can be quite difficult to say to people, well, I know it doesn't look great, but this is doing all sorts of good things for you know invertebrates, whatever it is. A lot of people still don't care about that. Yeah. What did you do before you joined the AA? I was at Transport for London for about 10 years as the arboriculture and landscape manager there. Um, before that, I was worked as a tree officer and sort of assistant tree officer in a couple of London boroughs. Yeah. So, yeah, mainly tree officer stuff and tree management stuff and a bit of kind of policy and strategy, that kind of thing. That must be a bit of a bit of a step up to go from being a tree officer for London um, and then joining over to the AA. What was it like actually working in London? I've only I've been like two or three times mm-hmm. and I've looked at the trees and went, how would you manage like the trees without causing absolute bedlam in the town? Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of pressures on people managing trees anywhere, but London is particularly high pressure because of the volume of people, whatever, eight and a half million people live there. And, Obviously, millions more visit as well. So there is a lot of pressure there. I, I wouldn't say this is a step up from being a tree officer. I think tree officer is a fantastic job. I absolutely loved it. I think there's um, it's such a special job. You know that sort of custodian of the urban trees, that management where you're you're responsible for what happens to them. And yeah. You're looking after them for a bit. You're balancing the risk and the benefits. You're dealing with the local authorities, dealing with contractors and consultants. It's a really, really great job to do. Um, but I've done it for about 10 years. I wanted a different challenge. Yeah. I did fancy getting out of London. Uh, so, yes, it was a great opportunity as well. Has working for DAA opened up any aspects of the industry you never really knew much about? I th- wouldn't say it's opened up aspects I didn't know much about. But it's certainly, you know, I'm, my role at the AA is to represent the whole profession, and you know the bulk of my experience is in tree management I've never been a consultant I've never climbed professionally I've never uh, run a contracting business I've not been an academic or a, a, a trainer or I've not worked in a nursery so there's huge amounts of the industry that I've never worked in um, I guess working for the association has opened up more people that I can yeah. speak to you know to learn about that um, but yeah it's great we've got such a diverse industry there's so many different career paths there and one of the fantastic things about the AA is we represent all of those different aspects so for me I get to talk to loads of great people who work in lots of different parts of the business with it being it's not a big industry it's about 30 odd thousand <laughs> tree surgeons give about but it is, it's big and it's not big at the same time how do you know what needs to be done next um, well, I don't know if working out what needs to be done next is based on the sort of number of people. It, you know, we can only ever do what we think's right. 
and we listen to our members we we try and uh, respond to what they're saying and what they're asking for I think that the thread that connects a lot of the problems that we face wherever we work in our boriculture is this lack of public understanding and this lack of awareness people yeah. don't know what our boriculture is they can't say it um, when I speak to people you meet them for the first time they say what do you do and I say oh I, I work with trees Yeah, they either <laughs> laugh or they go oh you're a tree surgeon yeah. I say oh no I'm not a tree surgeon I do that you try and explain it um, until we cut through to the general public so they can understand what we do and that they can understand what we do is important, that that we're not really going to get anywhere with what we want to achieve. So I think whether it is contractors, tree surgeons trying to be taken seriously or trying to be given more respect on the site when they get there, or whether it's tree officers trying to get more funding and better budgets, or if it's consultants wanting to demonstrate that you know they're the experts at report writing or subsidence whatever it is none of that's really going to happen until we get to a point where we're understood and appreciated by the yeah. general public because we every tree surgeon face you go well, i'm an arborist well what's that well i'm a tree surgeon oh yeah i know exactly what that is i've always said if you work on the ground and you climb the trees you're a tree surgeon and when you really start to understand the business and you've probably read half the books that's where i go now you're an arborist because mm-hmm. you're practicing every aspect of the industry you're not just focusing on right i need to go up there I need to do a 20 percent reduction i need to either ground that stump out it's going to the next level of the consultancy aspect and then either going down the consultancy route ecological route or even looking at becoming a tree officer like you've done in the past um i've, I've always asked this question to people who have gone up the ladder what was it like when you got that news? Was there a bit of a process? Did you have to go through multiple interviews? For this particular yes. role? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, well, I joined the association in summer 2019 as technical director. And then I became chief exec in summer 2021. Um, but, yeah, there was an interview process. I think I had about three interviews and lots of applications, lots of different things going on. Uh, it was... Um, I had to kind of think whether or not to go for it. You know, it's a very different role to what I've done before. Uh, I I got into this profession because I love trees, not because I love spreadsheets and budgets, you know, (laughs) and you have to accept that when you get a a more senior role, then you have to do a lot of that as well. Um, But I went for it and I'm very glad I went for it. And yeah, it was a long old process, but I was delighted to be appointed in the end. So a bulk of your early career working here has had to deal with coronavirus then, hasn't it? Yeah, I've worked, I've worked at the association for far longer now with coronavirus yeah. in the world than previously. So I started in August 2019. We sort of sent everyone home and kind of shut down. Well, not shut down, we kept working, but changed the way we worked in about March 2020, mm-hmm. I guess. So yeah, I've been I've been in the, the new world for yeah. longer than the old world, yeah. <laughs> I know, because a year ago we wouldn't be able to do this. We'd have to be over Zoom or yeah. anything like that. Was that your first biggest challenge you had to deal with? It was certainly a big challenge, yeah. I, I think it was a challenge, but it's a bit sort of cliche. It was also an opportunity. There was, you know, the COVID forced us all to work very differently. Yeah. It allowed us to bring in some changes that I think would have been brought in at some point anyway, but we kind of had to do it. Yeah. It has been fantastic for some things. Obviously, saying that with the understanding it's been horrendous for lots of people, yeah. for lots of reasons, and many people have, have been ex- extremely unwell. So I'm not belittling that. But in terms of an organisation, it's opened up great opportunities for things like webinars. The technology's always been there, but we've never done it before. Yeah. Online training um, for things like the, the AC scheme, whether you can do pre-interviews with people and you know, online. Um, 
And yeah, we, we reacted pretty quickly. We each area of the business responded differently and we started prioritizing what we could shift on to, to do it virtually. And I think we, we responded very, very well. Yeah, because when I started off, there was not a lot online that you could look at, you could research. You got the forums, then you got the, the YouTube videos that you should yeah. never really watch. And then the next week, you guys were producing all this content. It was like, well, why didn't you do this 10 years ago? And you go, well, we could all meet up 10 years ago. Yeah. We could sit down. It's a very hands-on industry. There's certain aspects of the industry you can look at a book and you can go to the classroom and learn about but a lot of it, you have to be outside. You have to see the trees. You've got to see the fungus, and you've face to face meetings. You can never beat a face to face meeting as well. Yeah, that's right. And you know, the when when well, now everyone's doing webinars. Webinars are ten a penny now, and they yeah. you can get loads and loads of online content, and some of it's absolutely fantastic. When COVID hit, as you said, there wasn't really anything out there. We were able to respond quite quickly. We were lucky in that. A lot of the content from previous conferences, for example, had been recorded. So we had this huge archive of material which was available online. We were able to start kind of knocking some of that together. We did a little series called Tree of the Best where we took like three different presentations from different conferences. And we put them together and I did a little introduction and, you know, topped and tailed it. Uh, and while we were getting that stuff out there, we were making plans to start producing new content, which is when we started doing the webinars. And we've done more than 60 webinars now. I think there's been more than 16,000 people have watched them from 142 <laughs> countries, I think we're on at the moment. And yeah, so we managed to build up a pretty good audience and a pretty uh, good reputation for delivering that content. And it was partly to keep people's CPD up when they couldn't yeah. do anything. But it was also to try and foster a bit of a sort of community, you know, spirit. Everyone was feeling pretty isolated for quite a while. And using the technology available, we hopefully gave people something to, to do and to keep them in touch with other people. Was it a challenge to take a more in-person courses and take them online as such? Did you, was there ever a hurdle where you thought, no, we, we can't actually transition this over? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some some courses lend themselves really well to online learning. You know, those courses where you used to travel to a room and you would sit in a room with a group of people listening to yeah. a trainer and then you'd all go home at the end of the day. That is relatively easy to transfer on online. I do think you lose a bit online because it's nice to have those conversations. A lot of the a lot of the work, a lot of the learning is over the coffee break, maybe or over lunch yeah. or whatever. So I think we've missed that stuff. But then there is a load of courses, something like professional tree inspection or whatever, where you're getting out there, you're looking at trees, you're prodding, you know, cavities, and you're looking at everything. You can't really do that online. Yeah. Um, so we had to make some decisions early on which ones we could move online, which ones would be more difficult to do, and you know, try to respond to the to the needs of the members as well and what the members were saying they they wanted. But you know, I'm very pleased that we didn't just say, oh, we can't do that anymore, let's stop. Yeah. Uh, we had a pretty short break, really. There was probably only a, a month or two where we weren't doing a, a, a lot of output, but during that time, a lot of work was going on to get ready so we could run with it. And whether it's moving online, whether it's creating our own training room uh, here at the Malt House, um, moving our conference online, we, we responded well. You also moved the Arb Show online as well, yeah, we did. Yeah, the Arb Show unfortunately couldn't go ahead for two yeah. years for obvious reasons. And again, we wanted to, you know, the Arb Show is really important to us. We, we want it to be a, a success. 
it's a difficult one to move online because part of the Arb show is walking around, yeah. hopefully in the sunshine, yeah. looking at different stores, looking at the kit, you know, picking stuff up, testing it. And you can't replicate that online, and we know that. But what we could do was create a space online for... Uh, our suppliers and exhibitors and the people who do participate to at least again be able to share some of what they're doing with other people. Was it a really tough decision to go right? We've tried and we've tried. We just we can't do it. We can't have the Orb Show this year because when the news came out, including me and everyone else, we were like, "Oh, okay, no beer, no li- no going around looking yeah. at all the shiny kits." Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, it, it was so where were we sort of March April time is when we coronavirus was obviously going to cause a big problem our show was supposed to be uh, in May um, that I guess the first Arb show is almost a bit easier because the way the restrictions were going we clearly didn't really have a choice you know that yeah, I think it, were we was, still in lockdown or were we coming out of yeah I get confused when it will happen yeah. but that so that was a relatively easy decision in some ways because yeah. we just kind of couldn't do it yeah um, our conference was planned for September, so you know it's, it's hard to remember now, isn't it? But back in March 2020, we were thinking well, it might be a couple of months. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll be able to do conference. I think in everyone September. thought that. And then it got nearer and nearer, and it came to the point when we just thought, well, no, you know, we can't do conference. Yeah. We need to pull conference. Then you're thinking, well, it's all going to be fine next year. We'll do our show 21. We'll do conference 21. That won't be a problem. And then you get to it and go we can't do this either and that became more difficult then and then what the problem you then get is trying to sort of predict stuff in the future you know so conference 2021 we thought we could do in person maybe we could have done in person technically I think the restrictions at the time were uh, relaxed enough that we probably could have held an in-person conference but you can't make the decision a month beforehand for something like no. that. You've got to make the decision months and months beforehand. Yeah. How long does it take for you to go, right, we're in September, we're getting ready for our show in May? Like, what's the, the timeline for it? Well, really, the way it normally works, and because of coronavirus, I, I've only been to one conference as an AA employee, and I've not been to any ARB shows as an AA employee, <laughs> but I think it was almost a constant year-long process. So when yeah. conference was done... You know, the first week after conference was done in September, the planning would really kick in for Arb Show in May, and then straight after Arb Show was done, you'd be, you know, going on for conference. But it it kind of runs it runs all year round. To use conference as an example, you, you you'll announce the theme for the following year's conference at the conference you're doing that year. So the planning for the next conference is often happening before that conference has happened. I barely plan these podcasts about a week in advance. Yeah, I still yeah. Well, that's, I could never do that. That's normally how I like to, to try and work as well. Yeah. But you know, these are big events. They're important events to people. Um, and you've got loads and loads of exhibitors. You've got thousands of people coming for yeah. an show. You've got hundreds of people coming for conference. And people need to plan stuff. And that's what really went out the window for the last couple of years. It was just really difficult to plan. So I wouldn't say you've teamed up with the enemy but news came out earlier this year. You've joined up with the APF. Mm-hmm. Um, talk me through the process. Was it just a phone call? Well, I said, we're going to come to the APF this year. Let's all get together. Um, well, there'd been discussions for a while. You know, it's the two biggest kind of arboricultural shows, uh, if you like. And I think there have been talks predating my time at the Arb Association about doing some kind of link up. I think that had been discussed before. Um, with COVID and with the Arb Show not happening for two years, it felt like it might be the opportunity if we're going to try something different. Yeah. This is a good year to, to try something different. Um, it's a trial. 
we've been really open about that. We're going to see how it works. We hope it goes really well. If it doesn't go well, then we can look at doing something different in the future. But for us, really, you know, if, if our show is good because there's lots of exhibitors and whatever, three, 4,000 people go through there, APF has likely to be more than 20,000 people yeah. going through there. So you've got far more footfall for our exhibitors. You've got far more crossover between exhibitors, between delegates, and you know more exhibitors to be seen, more delegates there as well. So we're hoping it will retain the, the Arb Show character, the Arb Show feel, but it will be located as part of you know the, the wider APF program. Is there anything specific that you were wanting to do in the last two years that you thought, right, we're going to include it in this year's show coming up? Well, the climbing competitions, of course, we want to be bringing back because we haven't been able to do any of that stuff. Um, and we've also got scope at APF to do some presentations and sort of best practice and sharing knowledge and all that kind of stuff as well. So it's all the stuff we've just missed that we've always done at Arb Show. The, the trick for us is going to be trying to make sure we can keep that sort of character of, of, of the event, which yeah. we don't want to be lost or diluted too much. But, you know, APF are really on board with it. They're really keen. We're really keen. We're going to see how it goes. Um, and, you know, we hope it's going to be a, a great success. If it is a great success, will it be staying with the APF? So will it be every two years? Or will you be looking to still keep the Arb Show in say 2023 we, we just honestly need Don't to know. see how it pans out yeah I, I could I could tell you something but it would be uh, yeah. it would be you know wouldn't be based on anything APF is every two years so if it goes really well and if we can come to an agreement with APF we could look to host it with APF every other year we would then have to look and see what we did in that in between year yeah. and when in the year it would be because obviously if you're doing a big event like that you kind of want it to be at the same time every year Conference has always been in the first week of September. APF is at the end of September. Yep. So organising, you know, I said earlier, these events each take months and months to organise. So to try and pull off two in the same month is a little bit tricky. Yeah. But then do you have Arb Show at APF in September, then the following year Arb Show in May, and then the following year back in September? Yeah. That doesn't really get... <laughs> so we, we need to work out what is best to do. But the first step of that really is seeing how it works this year. Right. When are you bringing the Arb Show north? Because us northerners, we get a little bit worried once we come past Birmingham. <laughs> uh, well, we have an active northern branch. A little bit further north, we've got a very active Scottish branch as well. So there's hopefully all sorts of scope for events up there. Uh, I would love to see Arb Show up north. I'd love to see Conference up north. 100%. I think it would be great. Because everything always seems to happen, like any events, even when we do different events, it's like the NEC or below, and it's like, okay, right, three, four hour drive, let's get down there. But we, we've always, we're northern as typical, we've always thought, you know, like, get it, like somewhere a little bit northern out towards top end of Newcastle way, maybe somewhere like really completely different. And I, was, I can't remember, when did the Forest Day have the Forest Check? Suppose that 20, I think that might. I can't remember what year it was. Because they had their own little mini um, forest show right up in Scotland somewhere, and that was even further away for us. But uh, yeah, just give give the team a nudge, say the Northerners want you up there. We absolutely love to do more stuff up north, 100%. Um, we, so to take conference as an example, we were in Exeter for a few years with conference because it's a fantastic venue but can be very difficult for people to get to. Conference this year is going to be in Loughborough, so we're kind of moving up to the Midlands. Yeah. Um, and we'd love to go further north with, with all of it. Awesome. Right, let's go on to some of more challenging questions. So, being in the industry, I'll, so the Arb Association's been around, correct me if I'm wrong, because my research isn't always on point. 
1974. 64, I think. 64, I see, I'm miles yeah. off already. So with it being, it's been around since 1964, why do the general public still not know, in, know enough? Like, mm. hasn't that been enough time to get out there? Yeah, good question. I, I don't really know is the answer to that. I mean, I can... I will I will give you as honest and straightforward answers as I can to any questions, but I can only really comment on what's happened since I've been yeah, of here. Course. I think that I think the word arboriculture is a real challenge. Um, people don't know what it means. Like I say, if you think of you know the equivalent of arboriculture is silviculture for forestry, but then they've got that word forestry. Everyone knows what forestry yeah. is. Not many people probably know what silviculture is, but there's that word forestry, and they all get that arboriculture. They don't know what that is, but we haven't got that kind of word underneath it. We've not got yeah. that sort of next tier down word that people get. Um, so, you know, tree care is probably the closest I can think yeah. that, that communicates that to people. Um, but I, I don't know. I think perhaps over the years we've maybe been quite inward looking. I think we've perhaps been a bit too focused on telling ourselves how important trees are. And I've been to many events over the years, not just for the Arb Association, for the profession in general where you'll get a group of tree people or get together in a room for a couple of days and we all tell each other how fantastic trees are and then we go home and that's great and yeah, I love no one events, else knows about and it and I never want to you know, get rid of those events but we need to be getting out there to the general public we need to be telling the general public about this we need to tell the politicians about it we need to be speaking to other disciplines whether it's landscapers or engineers or whoever it may be and uh, that's what we're trying to do now. That's probably our main yeah. priority now. Because the only way I've ever been able to compare it is to like the gas safe engineer mm-hmm. scheme. So everyone knows about it. And it's a case of, right, now is the time to really push the Arb Association to go with that. But like, I sit here and go, what do you do? Do you, do you lobby members in Parliament? Do you just do a nationwide TV campaign? But obviously there's budgets. You've got to get a return on it. Yeah. It's not something you can just throw hundreds of thousands, even millions at it to get everyone to raise up because even now no no one knows it we're in 2022 mm-hmm. and it's getting to that point where well people can sit there and go well the association's been around for donkey's years like what have, what have they done are they having the little consultants meetings going oh we need to look at implementing this legislation or is that now changing to where you're going right we have to build this up as a whole <coughs> industry and cover everyone on it yeah, okay, there's probably a few questions in that, I think. Um, we do have uh, what is both a challenge and an opportunity at the Arb Association in that we represent and work with and for the whole profession. And it is such a diverse profession, that's quite a challenging thing. Yeah. And I think probably since the association was founded you will have contractors saying, well, they only care about consultants. And you'll have consultants saying, well, they only care about contractors. And then yeah. you'll have tree officers saying, well, they only care about contractors and consultants. Um, so it's difficult to steer that path through in which people realise, you know, we are, we are trying to do everything we can. I sometimes compare it a bit to the, you know, to the BBC. You, know, you, you get you, Your job is to please everyone all the yeah. time. And the BBC will always be accused by the right of being too left. And yeah. they'll be told by the left they're too right. And, you know, you pr- it's probably good. If, you're, if everyone's shouting at you, you're, you're probably... You're in the middle then. Getting yeah. that path down the middle. So that's the first thing. I think it's really difficult. Uh, it's difficult to keep everyone happy. Um, public awareness of our boriculture and the importance of 
tree professionals is, like I say, probably our main priority at the moment. We've yeah. got a huge opportunity at the moment, and there's been an opportunity for the last couple of years, where trees are so high up the public and political agenda. Everyone's talking about trees. They all love trees. You would not get a politician trying to get elected saying, I don't like trees. You know, that's become so fixed in the mind now. And that's great, but all they're really talking about is tree planting. Tree planting figures, tree planting targets. Yeah, There's I, not yeah. that much thought about the aftercare, the maintenance. We've tried to almost move away from talking about tree planting to tree establishment. Because what we're trying to say is sticking a tree in the ground is fantastic. Yeah. But years of work have gone into that beforehand in the nursery trade, in the, in the tree offices, maybe your landscapers selecting that tree. Then you've got to grow it and to supply it and plant it. Then it's got to be looked after for another couple of years, watering, young tree maintenance, mulching. And then hopefully decades in the future of people inspecting the trees, people working on the trees, pruning, everyone. So it's trying to get people to understand that there is a whole profession that sits behind the success of a tree getting to maturity, and that's arboriculture. Do you think people are just too impatient? Like, to plant a tree and they're expecting it to grow 50 foot overnight? Totally, 100%. We, so, you know, Ted Green often talks about the fact that we, we work in tree time. Yeah, we, we work with tree time. We work with organisms that live, hopefully, for hundreds of years. I've never heard that before, tree time. Tree time. I like that. The best piece of advice that Ted ever gives me is John thinking tree time. Yeah. And we deal with trees that live for hundreds of years, and we are forced to operate within human lifespans, yeah. which is difficult enough, but political lifespans, which are even shorter. We have to work in political cycles. So we've all had this discussion, you know, with a member of the public when you're saying, well... It's going to look a bit rough for 20 years, but when you see it then, it's going to be absolutely fantastic. And they think, well, I don't really care about 20 years. I want it to look nice now. Politicians, trying to persuade a politician to spend money on something and saying, (laughs) in 50 years' time, we are absolutely going to reap the benefits of this. Most politicians are not interested in what happens in 50 years' time. They want something to happen for the next election. So... It's difficult for us to make the case for stuff because you know tree planting sexy. People love tree planting numbers. Mulching trees isn't sexy. Oh. Formative pruning isn't sexy. Irrigation isn't sexy. But and they don't care about planting ten thousand trees is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, of course it is. People love those numbers, and many of the numbers are ridiculous. You know, there are not enough trees in Europe to satisfy the tree planting promises that we've made in this country. What are the tree planting promises? Because isn't it? It's in like the millions. It's something ridiculous. Well, we had the 2019 general election campaign when all the different political parties were sort of outbidding each other with the numbers of trees being promised. What's more worrying for us at the moment, I think, is that the most recent government tree planting figures are being given in hectares. (laughs) Now, if you give tree planting figures in hectares, you're not talking about arboriculture, you're talking about forestry or woodland creation. And they're both really, really important. But as arborists... The work we do will never be respected as long as tree planting targets are given in hectares. Because I've been working in arboriculture and planting trees for whatever, 15 years or whatever it is now. Uh, I've probably never planted a hectare of trees. So we've got that challenge as well. We've got to make sure people understand that arboriculture is a completely separate profession to forestry. We're a completely separate profession to horticulture. We're different to woodland management. We do something very specific with amenity trees... And you cannot count the work you do in amenity trees in hectares. But how do you get that across to public and the government to say, look, we are our own industry? Because we get classed with gardeners. Mm-hmm. And it's like, right, that's horticulture. That's not horticulture. I wouldn't have a clue how to plant a pansy. And a gardener might not have a clue how to correctly prune a tree, for instance. Mm-hmm. But you talk to anyone and you go, well, you've got the gardeners, you've got the tree surgeons, and then it's all combined and we're now called landscapers. Mm-hmm. 
and it's it's frustration. So, what are your plans to? How would you even go about about doing that with people? Well, we are trying to lobby government. We're trying to lobby politicians to get them to understand that. Uh, we're trying to. Um, so, I'll give you an example: the, the changes to the red diesel exemptions. I don't that, talk about red diesel to anyone just yet. Christ. Yeah, well, I mean. <laughs> The the red diesel one is a really good example of why this is a problem, and it's yeah. something that we're trying to use as an example because, you know, the, as I'm sure you've seen, the in changing the red diesel exemptions, the treasury divided up the the land based yeah. sectors that work with red diesel into three areas, which was agriculture, horticulture, and forestry. So we weren't mentioned at all. Yeah. So all of the work that is done in arboriculture was kind of split out mainly under horticulture but a bit under forestry and as a result our members and just people who aren't our members people working in arboriculture are really going to struggle to be able to make these regulations work because I think this might not be 100% right but I think it's something like if you're pruning trees in a garden or in a public park you're exempt you can use red diesel but if you're pruning trees by a road then you're not exempt it's it's those typical government guidelines to where it reads one way, but you're meant to do it the opposite way. And you end up having to work in that grey area. At the moment, lads are confused if they can put red diesel in the chipper, mm-hmm. but if it's on roadside, you're not allowed. But if you're on private property, yeah. you are allowed. And it, it, it's a case of what got me was golf um, landscapers on golf courses, mm-hmm. all-day machineries allowed to use red diesel. Right, okay. And it was a case of going, well, hang on, surely that industry is not bigger than the tree care industry. Well, and, and this is why we're able to use this as an example. And we've actually, by the time this, this goes out, we may have had the meeting. We, we've got a meeting with the Treasury coming up soon yeah. to talk about this. We've been lobbying through, first of all, through DEFRA, then through the Treasury, then through our local MP, who, who, uh, who's been incredibly supportive and helpful uh, for this. Um, but yeah, if you're, doing a, if you're doing a council contract and you manage street trees and park trees, if you yeah. want to follow the regulations properly whilst getting the, the red diesel entitlement you're allowed, you need to buy a second set of kit, essentially. Yeah. We'll, we'll be seeing wood chippers eventually with three fuel tanks on them. Yeah. One for the deaf, one for red, one for white. It's it's really difficult. And we need to get that clarification. But one of the... Yeah. You know, the government hasn't done this... <coughs> excuse me. Government haven't done this deliberately. They've not gone, right, we're going to get those people working our our culture. They've just forgotten that we exist. Yeah. And it is the role of the Arb Association to remind them that we exist and hopefully through lobbying through speaking to them through making them aware of just how important this sector is we will start getting that recognition and one of the messages we're taking to government they're talking about lots of things like you know build back better and leveling up and all these different things that are being talked about at the moment if they genuinely want to deliver lots of these benefits to people that they're saying they want to deliver trees are going to be part of that we saw during COVID the idea of you know access to green space being really important. Yeah. Some people having less access to green space than others, which takes you into the road of green equity and everything, which is all very interesting. Um, and they started realising this now. But it's trying to say to them, you know, you're appreciating now that trees are multifunctional infrastructure. Trees do load of good stuff. But if you want them to grow into mature specimens that are looked after properly, you need to recognise our borer culture. And yeah. we've got to work at the cracks wherever we can. Red diesel is one of those cracks. Yeah, it's, again, we come through Gloucester today and we went through the town centre. And even I noticed some, there's not a lot of trees here. And you look at a lot of town centres nowadays and the concrete jungles. And again, it's a case of, like you, you summed up perfectly, the industry's forgotten about. Mm-hmm. So the architectures will go in, the tarmac and gang will go in. And then a couple of months later, someone from the council will go, I won't mind a tree here. 
Alright, dig all up, let's start all over again and let's have a tree plantation plan involved this time. Yeah, trees are often an afterthought and, and the arborist, the, the consultant, whoever it may be, is often an afterthought in the, in the process as well. So that is something we have to do and we are doing it, we are trying to do it. Why it hasn't happened over the last 60 years, I can say that you know, people have been trying, yeah. you know, the Arb Association has been trying, I can tell you that. And now we are you know, trying to sort of up those efforts, like I say, using our political contacts, lobbying in that way. Um, working through as many different routes as we can, also with our colleagues internationally, with our colleagues on groups like the Ornamental Horticulture Roundtable Group, where we sit with people like the RHS, you know, they're on board with this, uh, working with those organisations. But then a really big one is the general public. We've got to get the general public yeah. to care, and we've got to get them to understand. So you'll see, hopefully you've seen our new um, strategic plan, uh, which started this year, so strategic plan 2022 to 24. And a big part of that is to promote arboriculture to the general public. We're a charity. That's one of our charitable objectives, is to promote arboriculture to the general public. And that is what we need to do. We start getting people to understand and value it, and then they can start lobbying their um, MPs and their councils. Yeah. Have you got a tree officer? No. Why? Why haven't you got a tree officer? It's getting those extra voices out to people. So what are you doing to raise awareness? Are you doing, like local events, local fates, local trade shows or such? Yeah, we've started going out to quite a few more local events, whether it's things like country fairs or whether it's really small scale, like little local climate groups, that sort of thing. We're trying to get our name out there more. Um, we're doing a lot of stuff locally. Obviously, we're based in Gloucestershire, but we operate you know, internationally. Um, and we're trying to do lots of stuff down here that can be replicated by our branches and by our members across yeah. the rest of the country. We're trying to produce a lot more public-facing documentation and material. So there'll be a new guide coming out soon, which will be a, a guide to young tree establishment that'll have really straightforward information about you know, where to plant a tree, how to plant the tree, what tree to plant, how to look after it after you've planted it, how to water a tree. Public-facing materials, public-facing documentation. Yeah. Like I say, moving away from that insular, just looking at the professional market. Yeah. We're always going to be interested in looking at the professional market because that's a key part of what we do. But whenever our members say to us what they want, one of the main things we're told is we want you to tell people what we do. Yeah. So we are doing that. We're attending events. We're running a public event at Westonbury in May. We're doing a brand new event called the Tree Care Forum, which is aimed just at the general public as a showcase for our culture. Uh, we'll be promoting, obviously, the Arb Show. We're going to try and promote, do more to promote the climbing competitions. We're trying to make sure that more people want to come into the industry because it's not just about the people who are in this industry now. Where's that next generation of arborists coming from? Yeah. Do you get any government funding or support as such? No. So you're, you're fully self-funded as a charity? Yeah, we get our money. Uh, come, the bulk of our income is from membership. Yeah. And then also, obviously, the approved contract scheme from selling publications and the books that we publish from events and training and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But those The best thing the Arb Association's ever come out with was those technical guides. Yeah, they're brilliant. I, I've, I've noticed you got the third <laughs> one. The third one's the one I'm missing because I've got all the others from my birthday when they first came out and I was just like... I would have loved this. Like, <laughs> honest, I cannot praise um, Chris. I can't think of the other gentleman's name. I can't praise the authors of those mm. books enough because I got them and I went, I needed this in college. Mm. And I've said every 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 great arborist or any arborist or anyone coming into the industry, get those books as your foundation. They yeah, should definitely. be your foundation books. Yeah, it's, a, absolutely it's, fantastic. it's a great achievement and it's the result of a lot of hard work by a lot of people, some of them working here at the association, yeah. some of them external. I can take absolutely zero credit for them, I must say. All the work was done before I arrived. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on to the next question. 
when I find it because I got myself lost. The contractor scheme. This, this I've had so many questions and events. Right, I know certain things, but I want to go down. Let me get it all out. Let sure. me speak to people. What is the contractor scheme? What What does it mean to the contractor and to the end customer as such? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, first of all, I think what I'd say is quite important for people to understand. Uh, it's almost like a kind of clarification, I guess. Because there'll be a lot of people out there who think, well, <coughs> the Arb Association do the scheme... Uh, you know, to, to make money, basically, it's a big, it's a big profit generating <laughs> thing. I can tell you, we we don't make a lot of money yeah. on the scheme. We don't do the scheme for for, for money. Um, as I say, we're a charity. Everything we bring in is reinvested into it, um, and the scheme doesn't bring in a, a, a massive chunk of money for us. Uh, it is not about that. It's about raising standards. Yep, that's the purpose of the scheme. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. Uh, but it's there to raise standards, and some fantastic work has been done over a number of years. You'll know some of the people involved: Paul Smith, Polly Stone, um, and uh, many of our assessors who are absolutely brilliant to take the scheme to where it is now. And we are investing more in the scheme than we've ever invested before to look to take it to the to the next level. So for me, the scheme is really for for two. There's two purposes to the scheme. One is to raise standards and to set a sort of benchmark that says if you're working in arboriculture in terms of health and safety and in terms of tree work this is what good looks like this is what you should be going for that's the first thing and the second thing is to really offer reassurance to the general public and to tree managers in an unregulated industry that they are getting someone who is reputable. We all know there's many people working in arboriculture who are not reputable. Yeah. We have no control over those people because they're not going to be joining the association. Uh, they cause damage to our reputation. They cause damage to our trees. They put their employees and the general public at risk. And as things stand, the only real way that exists for the general public to have assurance that they're taking they're engaging someone who is a a responsible and good contractor is the scheme now it's very important i would also say the fact that we would like to think that if you're on the scheme it's because you're good that is what we'd like that's the point there are loads of fantastic contractors out there who are not members of the scheme yeah the fact that you're not a member of the scheme does not mean you're not good the Arb Association would never say that. Um, and also, you know, I've seen some of your, your previous interviews when the impressions almost are, well, the Arb Association say that if you want certain contracts, you need to be an approved yeah. contractor. That's true to an extent, but largely not. I've not really heard that said, that there are a couple of boroughs, for example, or a couple of local authorities that do say if you want to tender for work on their, in their areas, you need to be Arb approved contractor. Yeah. Uh, there's not that many of them, but there are some. But I think for a contractor, again, probably two main things really. A lot of contractors I speak to who see the scheme as being a benefit, one reason they give is because of the increased business. It's really hard to quantify that, but I know that as, as a tree officer, if someone comes to you and people come to you all the time, a couple of times a week probably, a member of the public will say, can you recommend a good tree surgeon? And a tree officer will say, no, we're not allowed to do that. But if you go on the Arb Association website, you can find someone near you. So I've got no doubt that it does generate business for people. But the other reason, and possibly the more important reason, 
is what some contractors have said to me, which is that it it kind of keeps them on track. Yeah. It's hard to know if what you're doing is the right thing sometimes. You know, you can kind of do what you're thinking is the right thing, but you can do that for a few years without anyone looking in externally. You can easily kind of drift off. And the Arbor-Proof Contractor Scheme is a way in which every two years, plus your desktop audit, someone externally is coming in and scrutinising your business and saying, this is what we think you're doing right, this is what we think you can improve. And I think that is a really important benefit of being on the scheme. Because you mentioned a large proportion it is is an unregulated industry. And I had that same experience of starting my business and then I'd have to look at other industries to go, right, so how did they do an invoice? Okay, um, how do you get work? And you, could, you can go on and on and on and get completely confused and lost. I didn't actually get told when I was in college that the Arb Association existed. Yeah. And I'm in college getting taught by yeah. industry professionals. It, I, it must have been a year, maybe even two years, after I'd completed my qualifications and went, Oh, there's an association. Well, what's this? And I, I downloaded all the free materials, the risk assessment, the method statements, and thought, well, this, this is like this is fantastic. And then you get onto certain forums, and then you guys get a slating. I, I'll be honest, I've gave you guys a bit of a slating in the past because mm-hmm. I've went, well, what do they really do? Because all I ever say, and I've had to, I've always had the same stance. I don't hate the arbiculture, I've got nothing against them, I just don't understand what they would do for me as a contractor at the time. And I was like 20, 21 years old at the time. And you'd speak to other people who have had a bad experience and who would sit there and go, oh no, they're just in it for the money, it's Mm -hmm. an old boys club. And you, for me, I took that information as God's gift because I went, oh, these have been in the industry 40 years. And it was only a couple of years later where I'd see their level of work and I'd go, Okay, that's why you're not approved because that work is absolutely shocking. So I see, I people won't believe, it, but I do see a lot of benefits. I love the Orb Show. I love the technical guides that have come out. So yeah, I think it's it's trying to overcome those barriers of what other people have said against the Arbiculture Association and making your own agenda as such. I do think every tree surgeon needs to be above the BS standards. They need to have that that level of one customer care. Two, caring for the trees. And actually just not going out and hacking stuff and just thinking, oh, I've got a chainsaw, I can do wherever I like and all of that jazz. Would you ever want to see it become mandatory to join the association as such? No. No. I think that some kind of regulation would be a good thing, I think. You know, it is very, very difficult when anyone can go and buy themselves a chainsaw and call themselves a chainsaw. I was about to ask, what does that regulation mean for you? Does that ban out, outright sales of chainsaws? Oh, I think there'll be a lot of detail to yeah. work out and exactly what, what would have to happen under a regulatory system, which is one of the reasons it's probably never happened, because it would be very, very complex. Um, I think that there should be more regulation, as I've said, for, for health and safety, for customer confidence, for the good of the trees and for the reputation of our whole industry. I would never say I think it should be mandatory for people to be members of the Arb Association. Yeah. I think people should have the choice you know, to, to be members of whatever group or association that they want to be members of. Uh, and like I say, it's not, about, um, it's not about getting the money in from the members or whatever, although getting the money in from the members is what allows us to do the stuff we do. It is about raising standards. It is about our borer culture. 
And a lot of what we do isn't just to benefit our members. A lot of what we do, most of what we do, is to benefit the profession, whether people yeah. are members or not. And we do want to move away slightly from that kind of traditional transactional relationship. You know, I give you money and you give me stuff. And that's fine. <laughs> and we never want to get rid of that because that's part of being a member of an organisation. But there's another part of being a member of an organisation. That is, you know, being part of something. It's being part of a group of people who are all interested in the same thing. Yeah. It's about adding weight to, to numbers because when we lobby parliament when we talk to people we say well we've got around 3,000 members but just under 3,000 paying members just over 3,000 members in total um, you know the more members we've got the more weight we've got if we were saying we had 10,000 members that takes you up to another kind of level so of course membership numbers are very important um, but it's not just about that so yes I'd like everyone to be a member of the Arb Association but I wanted to be a member of the Arb Association because they want to yeah. not because they have to yeah. it's the so you, you speak that you've got like just under 3,000 paying, just over 3,000 um, collective. Say people don't want to get involved with the Arb Association, but they do want to show their support, they do want to get their voices behind you guys as such. How can they go about doing that? Well, if they don't want to be members, then they, they're still more than welcome to get in touch and tell me what they want to say, you know. I, I, we will all, we're never going to keep everyone happy. Um, we're always going to receive criticism, and that's fine. What I would always say, you know, uh, I won't pretend that we'll always make the right decision because I certainly won't get 100% of my decisions right, yeah. but I'll always be able to justify what I'm doing. And I want to hear from the members yeah. what they think we're doing right, what they think we're doing wrong. I want to hear from people who aren't members and why. That's what I want. But what's really important, if people aren't happy about something they can come and speak to us. John at trees.org.uk. Drop me an email. Give me a call. Come down and visit. Yeah. We can deal with that. We can work together to improve things. What's not helpful is when sort of, you know, keyboard warriors sometimes will get on there and go, yes. oh, the Arab Association's rubbish. I think they're crap. Yeah. That's fine. It's entirely up to you to, to say that and that's not a problem. But it's, that's not going to change anything. Come and talk to us. Come down here, have a chat, or I'll come to you. If you want me to come out there, I'll come to you. And we can talk about ways we can improve. But there's ways and means of doing it that are productive and constructive. Yeah. And there's ways that are just kind of sniping from the sidelines. It's very easy to criticise stuff. It's more difficult to create stuff. you know. And we, don't, and we don't have the luxury here of just criticising stuff. Because yeah. we're the people who have to create it. I don't think people realise. Like, it is a small team. It's not, yeah. it's not hundreds of people. You're not in some <clears throat> massive office. Nope. It, it's still, it is undervalued in the industry. Yeah. But how do you get through to that group of voices that want to say, I've got this idea and those keyboard warriors come after you? I started this podcast to, to rule them out, say, look, this is honest advice. Mm -hmm. You can listen to what I say. I get the professionals on. We have the conversation. You can go and you can learn something from it. And this is what I said to Steve in the marketing department. It's like, I want to get John on because I've got a platform. We can have the voice. You've, you've just clearly shown it's not that old boys club anymore no. to where... You have to pay the membership to have a voice. No. You just reach out to you. Totally. Drop you an email. And we're in the 21st century now. We the, the whole... I think people have probably always thought the old boys network is maybe a bit worse than, than it is. And I've not really seen that in the association. But any vestiges of that that are left, we are getting rid of. That's not what it's about now. Yeah. And we are opening the doors to people. We want more people to be involved, more people engaged in whatever capacity they want to be. And... Uh, that is a really key part of what we're doing going forward. And I'll give you, 
excuse me, I'll give you an example uh, with the AC scheme actually, which is, I say, we've got some fantastic people working on it for the association. We've got our network of assessors who've been great and, and continue to do brilliant work for us. But we really want to expand our network of assessors, you know. So what we've done recently, we've started advertising to ask people if they want to become assessors to get yeah. involved and become assessors. Now, I think historically there may have been this idea that, oh, you know, you'd only become an assessor if you kind of got a tap on the shoulder sort of thing. And that might always... You know, always <laughs> stole stole, stole Mason's. So, exactly, that kind of setup. <laughs> and, you know, if anybody out there is interested in becoming yeah. an assessor for the RAC scheme, drop us an email... We will review an application and we can arrange interviews and we can look at doing it. This is an open and transparent thing. We want critical voices. We want people to be telling us when we're doing things right and when we're doing things wrong. Just this, you're literally you're like smashing it on the nail on the head for me because <laughs> I wanted to come down and go right because I've had this. This it's been put on me. It's been put on other colleagues in the industry. It's an old boys club, and I've I've always stood aside going. No, not until I've sat down and actually spoken to them. Because you go to the trade shows and you go, well, they're there. They're not hiding away. They're not, they're not all in anoraks at the weekend, specifically going, well, this tree needs this, this and this. And again, when all the webinar stuff came out, it was like, oh, the, it was a bit of a shock to go, well, they're finally moving in the 21st mm-hmm. century. They're uploading stuff online. And you still have those people in the background. You eventually go, well, yeah, you're in the background. Yeah. And everyone else in the industry is finally moving forward with it all. Uh, and, look, you know, we, we're, like I say, we're never going to keep everyone happy all the time. <clears throat> and that's fine. The webinars, I think the webinars was maybe a bit of a turning point for us in a way. Because when COVID hit, different organisations responded in different ways. And I don't know if there was really a right way or a wrong way. It's just people had to find their own way under very difficult circumstances. And the webinars was the way that we found of connecting with people. But, you know, there were, when we started getting, we started running, then we started getting sort of, you know, two, three hundred people watching the webinars. And so there was a section of people saying, well, you should charge for these. If you charge for them, you'll, you'll get money in for that. And then there were other organizations who were just doing webinars for their members. Yeah. And, and we took a very definite stance early on, which was that all of our webinars would be free at the point at which we broadcast them. We might make them uh, a member-only benefit later. We might have single-day sort of standalone events you have to pay for, but the webinars would be free for anyone to watch. And that is because we wanted to share information and knowledge. We wanted to bring some of the best speakers in the world to people who maybe wouldn't ordinarily get the chance to go and see them. And we wanted to open the doors in that way. And something really interesting that's happened is that when people are renewing their membership, and I have to say, we've got record membership numbers. Our membership numbers are are going up. And a lot of other membership organisations have got declining membership numbers. Ours have gone up through coronavirus. And one of the reasons is people like what we're about. They like our approach. They like our attitude. And what's been interesting is people have been signing up as members and as people have been renewing as members, we ask them why they're members, why they're interested, what they like most. And one of the most popular things that people have said is, we think the webinars are really good. They're worth the membership on their own. It's a great member benefit. Now, it's not a member benefit. And they know it's not a member benefit because it doesn't matter if you're a member or not. You can watch the webinars. And I think what they mean, and having spoken to a few of them, I think what they mean is that not that it's a monetary benefit, they've paid us money and we've delivered, you know, they've got webinars in exchange, but they can see where their money's going. Yeah. These are members yeah. who want us to be spreading the word about our Bora yeah. culture and they can see where that money's going. They can see that more people, I think, 
know about arboriculture than have done. More people know about the Arboricultural Association than they have done. And they are buying into an ethos and a way yeah. of doing stuff that some people are never going to want, but a lot of people do. And you're never going to get there by being an old boys club. We are getting there by being open and by being transparent. Our strategy is there that sets out quite clearly what we're planning to do, where we're planning to go. There's a pin board over there with a list of about 100 actions that we're planning to deliver that is on that board and that you can go and have a look at and you can do a piece later about what's on there and it is completely open and transparent where we're trying to go. And we're listening to our members and we're listening to people who aren't our members and we are always striving to be better. And I feel it's trusted content as well. It's not taught by some some random person who stood next to a tree and you just think, oh, that's not what I got taught by the book. It's people who have worked in this industry or involved in this industry to where you can go on the webinar and go, I can't actually use that information. It's not just some random YouTube video that's being produced. It's got the backing of you guys behind it as yeah, well. Yeah, hopefully so. And, and it's bringing a diversity of voices and it's putting challenging stuff out there. Yeah. <clears throat> we put stuff out that people go, well, that's nonsense. We don't agree with that. We don't like that. We're not saying that we are buying into or, you know... Um, uh, supporting every single thing that's saying of the webinars, but we are bringing different perspectives to it. Yeah. And again, if someone, and this has happened a couple of times, people say, oh, well, you should get such and such on there saying, talking about this, or I come on there and talk about this. People can do that. Yeah, it is funny because we get people saying, oh, I'll come on the podcast and talk about it, and we'll get down to it and go, oh, well, I'm, I'm not too sure. Now, it's a case of, look, if you want to come on this podcast, you need to be really up there because yeah. we have a lot of people that listen to it. Yeah, I just want to go back to the scheme again. Um, I'm thinking, I've listened to the podcast, Tom's opened my eyes, John's opened their eyes. It's not what it used to be, it's what it is now I'm going forward. I'm thinking of becoming a contractor. How do I go about it and what's involved in the process? I think the the best thing to do is to contact um, some of my colleagues here who will be able to sort of talk you through it. Um, I mentioned that we've got more investment in the scheme than ever before. We've just recruited, uh, at the end of the summer last year, uh, Francois Suzanne, uh, and Fran is our new business development manager, so we've got more people working on the scheme than we have done previously. And Fran and Paul and Polly will be able to talk you through the process of application. But it's really, to kick off with, it's just talking to us about it we can give you some advice give you some tips someone can come out see if you're kind of ready or whatever um because we don't we're not in the business of people going for it and then not getting it and then having to go for it again we want people to be going for it when they're ready and we want to help support people through that process so the best thing to do really is contact us again it's uh, fran at trees.org.uk is the best uh, email to go on but (coughs) excuse me um, we are also rewriting the scheme handbook so it sets out more clearly in a more user-friendly way uh, the benefits of being on the scheme. We're looking at how the modular system works. We're looking at if we're checking the right things. Are we looking at all the right things? Are there areas we can expand on? Are there areas that aren't needed so much? We're looking at how we work with um, you know, stuff like SIP certification. We are recruiting more assessors. We're going to try and review how the, um, the payment model works so it's a bit more consistent instead of peaks and troughs. We're looking at absolutely every aspect of how the scheme works, and not just the scheme, the whole organisation, but every single aspect of how it works, and we are going to see how we can create something that is building on all of the great work that's happened for many, many years, but then making it sort of future-proof, so that when we do start getting four, five, six hundred people signing up, we've got the infrastructure there to deal with that too. Yeah, It's it's not often, because I get to speak to quite a lot of different CEOs in different roles, just because I've been mentored by some amazing people in the past. And you'll see certain CEOs in the 70s and you'll go, 
you haven't changed anything in 20 years and you've come in and it feels like you've taken everything that's been done and then you've went, right, instead of it just being like this, we need to put it up here and now's the time to do it. You give, like I don't want to sound like too cheesy, but you give that breath of fresh air at last to where you think, it doesn't actually just sound like he's saying it, it sounds like he's actually doing it while he's saying it. And you don't get that often from people. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. Thanks. We, we, I should say that I'm just a person sat here talking, but the work is done by an amazing team that is here. And we also have a great board of trustees and we have lots of volunteers and everything. So there's a lot of people working on it. And we're building, as you said, we're building on work that's been done for a very, very long time. And we need to accept and acknowledge all the great work that's been done for years. Uh, but we do need to change we need to open up we need to change the way we do things and I'm very lucky I've got a fantastic staff team here they're just brilliant my colleagues here are great we've got a really forward thinking dynamic group of trustees who are really up for all the different ideas we're putting forward and we've got an opportunity because we've got you know people are talking about trees they might not always be talking about the right bit about yeah. trees. They might not always be talking about trees in the way we want to talk about it. But they're talking about the fact that trees are good. And that is an incredible opportunity for an organisation like ours and should be an incredible organisation for the whole profession because half the problem is getting people to talk about it. Yeah. They're talking about it already. So we've just got to, sort of, we've got to move quickly to exploit that. Yeah. So another industry-wide issue... Um, I'm going to briefly touch on it because I'm still I'm still waiting. I've had no one reach out to me to come on the podcast, which is a shame. Women in arboriculture. Mm-hmm. Why is it such a problem? Why can't we get women involved in the industry? Well, I'm probably not the best person to talk to <laughs> about that, but I think we have a general problem with diversity in, in the profession. It's overwhelmingly male. It's overwhelmingly white. And we need to be far more representative of the communities that we serve. Uh, we've got a women in arboriculture group at the association, yep. which is very active. Uh, we think that I think it's about ten percent of people working in arboriculture uh, are women. Um, I should imagine that the kind of contractor on the tools level, that's probably much lower. Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes you can get almost a, a false sense of security because, given the number of women in the profession there's sort of a disproportionate number of women in senior positions. So obviously we've got our chair, Michelle Ryan, you've got Sharon, who's a president of uh, the ICF, you've got you know, Sarah Long at the Tree Council, you've got Shereen Chambers at the ICF, you've got Caitlin at, at the ISA, um, so, and many more I haven't mentioned. Of her. Um, but I think there's that thing where you think, oh, well, you know, lots of these organisations are run by women, so it must kind of be okay. Yeah. Because, and, and it's not. We need to... We need to change things around how do we do it it's really difficult like I say I didn't know that arboriculture was a career option till I was in my mid-20s I think we need to be telling everybody at a much earlier age that they can get a career working in trees hopefully that'll cut through some of um, some of those preconceptions one of the most damaging preconceptions we've got is this idea that if you want to work in arboriculture you've got to have been on the tools you know you've got if you can't if you if you haven't pruned a tree then you can't specify uh, yeah. you know, a, a tree job or whatever you can't be a consultant because you haven't been a tree surgeon that is not true yeah I'd, I'll, I'll hold my hands up that is my conception I've always <coughs> said well if you've not done the job you shouldn't teach the job yeah but it's I don't think it's about that at all you know, I, I never worked commercially as a tree surgeon I was rubbish with a chainsaw when I was at college I'd be even worse now <laughs> um, 
But when I was specifying tree work, I would often do it with with the arborist. You know, yeah. if you're saying, "Can you go and do this?" and they go, "Oh, maybe, what about this?" You go, "Oh yeah, well maybe what about that?" And then when they're up in the tree, they've got a better view from being inside that tree than than you have stood on the ground sometimes. And they'll go, well, "Maybe we should do this instead." And you kind of listen to it and you react to it and you respond to it. Um, was I a worse tree officer because I hadn't climbed professionally? It's a difficult thing to judge. I don't think so. Um, but if you follow that conception through, if you follow that, that idea through that in order to be successful in consultancy or tree officer work or teaching or whatever, you must have worked professionally as a tree surgeon, that is making our chances of getting some kind of representation of diversity even worse. It's a very mm-hmm. reductive view. And uh, no, I don't think it's the case at all. Yeah, can we get over that? Do we have to like educate people within the industry? Do we have to just wait for the next generation of arborists who are open minded, who aren't pig headed as such? Say this is a man's industry; women can't work in it. Full stop. Well, it is a difficult one. Um, there's absolutely no reason that women won't do just as good a job yeah. in our poorer culture as men. That hopefully goes without saying now. Um, we do need to make sure that the environment is one that everybody feels accepted and welcome into. We need to call out sexist, racist nonsense, the banter that we have, the you know, yes. the, all that stuff. That oh, it's just the way we talk. I'm sorry, you could call me a politically correct. It would have been called a few years ago. Woke. It would probably be written yeah. off as now. We we need to get rid of all that stuff because we need this to be. A profession in which everybody's respected and can work comfortably. That's that's what we need. Um, so it needs to be done at lots of different levels. We need to be telling everybody that arboriculture is a place for them to work. We need to be encouraging people from a much younger age to get into it. We need to be addressing some of the really blindingly obvious stuff like kit that is purely designed for men, not for women. Helmets. Um, we need to be looking at you know, that research how can we get over some of those barriers that are there like i say i'm i'm not the right person to talk about this necessarily but we have lots of fantastic women working in arboriculture who i'm sure will be able to help and assist and mentor other women trying to get into arboriculture we've got a women in arboriculture group um and you know the there are people there to speak to who can give the best advice but we we must be an open and transparent and welcoming profession yeah and as far as i'm concerned there is no real place in the association for people who want to take those old-fashioned views of banter which make others feel like they don't belong here because yeah. i've never understood it understood it myself i've never had any females work for me in enemy tree companies and it's been a case of well why and then you hang out with the lads and you think oh well we all swear constantly it's massively off-putting for for young, even for younger lads coming into the industry. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, men and women are equally able to swear and you know go for a wee in the woods or whatever. Uh, it's more about creating. It's more about creating an environment in which everyone can work, yeah. whatever their background is, whatever their gender, whatever their religion or race or whatever it is. This needs to be a profession that anyone can work in if they want to work in it, and they have to be made to understand. You don't need to have climbed a tree in order to succeed. You don't need to be a great arborist to be a great tree officer, to be a great consultant. There is so much diversity in the roles that we've got in this profession. That's what we need to celebrate 
more of. Yeah. And if you want to work in arboriculture, there is a role for you here. Yeah. It won't necessarily be climbing a tree with a chainsaw. Yeah, I was about to say, it's not it just be. being on the tools. No. Consultancy, tree officer, even forestry work, for instance. Yeah, but what, you know, what I'm also very keen to, to get rid of is this idea I think has somehow grown up over the years where there's kind of a there's kind of a hierarchy of working in arboriculture. You've got the contractors down at the bottom and then the next level up is some of those contractors might become tree officers. Yeah. And then the next <laughs> level up is maybe one day you'll reach the pinnacle of being a consultant. Yeah. Um, that's just not the case. There is just as much value in, in, in a tree officer as a contractor and, you know, and a grounds person and a consultant. It, we've got to get rid of this idea of there's this kind of pyramid with elite consultants at the top and then grounds people at the bottom. Yeah. And it's all about trying to climb up that. That's just nonsense. We have a huge range of roles, a huge range of skill sets. And it's not going from a tree officer to consultant isn't necessarily a promotion. It's not necessarily moving up through the, you know, through the profession. It's just doing a different role in it. Yeah. And until we get that across to people, yeah. we're going to struggle too. I'd love to go... Oh, sorry, I thought you were waving your hand then, just itching your ear. Sorry. <laughs> I would love to go back to college now to see how things are being taught, if changes have been made in the 10 years. I've been involved in the industry since 2008, start of 2009, and that's the mentality I got told, was apprentice, chainsaw operative, lead climber, lead climber, and then that's where you'd start looking at, because your body would be at that time of its life, 30, 35 years old, where your back's starting to give out. And then it was, right, you either run the business or you look at going down the consultancy mm-hmm. route. And then from the consultancy route, it was very, like, fixated. Just in, yeah. You could just go in the one direction. And he, even a couple of years into the industry, it was a case of, oh, oh I didn't know this and I didn't know that. I never got taught, like, what, what, even what a tree officer was at the mm-hmm. time. And we're only going back, what, when I was, like, 10, 12 years, 12 years yeah. ago. It's very much changed. I'd love to be able to go to colleges now and go, well, it's great to see like stuff from the Arb Association being taught in the classes. Is, does that happen now? Do you have a lot of involvement in colleges? I hope so. We don't have huge amounts of involvement in colleges. We'd like to have more. We, we've got an education and training committee. We do our student conferences a couple of years, which again, in fact, not been able to do for the last two years, but we will, we will be doing again. Um, but I'd say, you know, go to colleges, go to them, find out and ask them. Yeah. Get get someone on, you know, get someone from the education side of things. Yeah. On, Might on get Duncan podcast. Slater from Moscow. Get Duncan and do it. Get it's, come on. He, he's, he's got a heck of a name in his, I love seeing his, um, is it a Slater's book or something that he does on LinkedIn? The, the case book. Yes, the case book. No, he's absolutely fantastic. There's loads of fantastic people out there. And uh, yeah, like I say, go and ask them, go and find out what they're doing. Because it, that is a really important stage of it is what we're teaching people. And like you say, I... When, when I was at um, uh, Merris Wood, uh, there wasn't really that much talk about going off to become a tree officer or going off to become a consultant. Mm. It was quite focused on people who wanted to go on the tools and go climbing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, luckily for me, because as I've said, I was rubbish at that bit, I only realised while I was there and while I was doing my work placement that there was so much more stuff you could do, so much extra stuff. And, but it's, one's not better than the other. That's really important that we we get rid of that. It's not yeah. it's not better or worse than the other. They're just different roles within a diverse profession. 
Okay. Right, we're going to go to my like, little random question section. I've got mm-hmm. questions that I thought I can't stick anyway. I'm going to have to stick them into the little section. Is there going to be any more technical guides coming out in the future? Oh, I think it's been stressful enough producing these ones, to be (laughs) honest. Uh, I'm not sure if there are any more technical guides planned for the future, but we are always open to ideas for what's needed. And we've had several examples of documents where someone will approach us and say, I'd like to write this document, or I think there's a gap for this document, and we can work with them, we can commission it ourselves, we can write it ourselves. So nothing immediately in the pipeline in terms of technical guides. We've got some more guidance notes coming. Um, but if anyone thinks we should be doing something, again, get in touch, let us know. Yeah. And if you haven't got the technical guides, honestly, just go buy them. <laughs> I'm not here to just go do the best things in the world, but they are bloody good. They are good. Absolutely fantastic. Um, what were your thoughts on the tree contractor scheme, the TC2020, that tried to come out not that long ago? Yeah, I, I didn't look into it in a huge amount of detail. I think it's obviously... Um, if anyone out there wants to set up some kind of scheme, then that is entirely at their discretion to do that. Uh, but I think that it's a, a tribute, I hope, to the quality of the approved contractor scheme yeah. that, that that one didn't sort of get off the ground. Yeah, because we've asked them to come on the podcast and they've completely ignored, ignored us. The second I've mentioned all things are and would like to talk about the scheme, it was hang up. Mm-hmm. And it, it was... It was something that we, we got made aware of, and I'll be honest, I kind of looked at it and went, yeah, best of luck with that. I'll just push that to the side. It, it, I looked at it, it was, an, it was, an, it was a non-starter. Yeah, I, it, it's, I don't know anyone who's actually gone with it. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to knock anyone for trying mm. anything different or trying anything new. I think the competition's a good thing. Competition's healthy. I don't think there'd be any issue if there was another scheme that did something yeah. of the same quality. I think that'd probably be quite a good thing. Yeah. You know? Um, but it is looking at the motivations of it and like I say I think there's and I'm not talking about that particular scheme at all because I don't know enough about it but the the motivation of running a scheme for the Arb Association is to raise standards Yeah. and it would be quite easy to imagine someone forming a scheme where the motivation was profit and in yeah. order to do that you're going to lower the standards to get more people in and that isn't good for the profession um, one of the things that I noticed on the AA's website is the rehab for addiction. I never, because I'll compare it to America for a second. You look at America, tree work in, in America, I could be speaking completely out of terms, but from what I've seen from my old research, drug use and trees seem to be a lot higher on the scale than it is in the UK. Have you noticed an increase in the UK at all or anything? Well, it's not the kind of thing that would necessarily be brought to your attention. You know, mm. if that is happening, uh, anecdotally, you hear over the years of, of stuff happening. It's it's never been raised with me formally as a, as a major problem. Um, and obviously, I hope it's I hope it's not. Yeah, stay because I've I've never come across it. But I've seen it on the website. So I was like, oh, I didn't think it was even needed in this yeah, industry. Yeah, well, I mean, the the website tries to pull together as many resources yeah. that may be of use to the members and to, to others as we possibly can. And, you know, that sort of rehab side of things is, is one of them. One of the most fantastic groups of people, and you should get them on the podcast if you haven't already, is Perennial. Um, yeah, I was looking at that the other week, because um, they do... The physio stuff. I needed to get physio on my ankle, and that's how I, I strangely, right. strange enough, came across it. Yeah, well, perennial, who are there as a, a charity, basically for people who hit hard times mm. and who need a bit of help. 
perennial are there and the Arb Association, we, we support them as one of the main charities we support and uh, they are absolutely brilliant and you should check them out. Everybody should be aware of them and everyone should check yeah. them out. Do they help with mental health as well? Because I've noticed mental health is now really hitting the main headlines for yep. people. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do and they can signpost you towards... Um, towards guidance and everything you need and yeah they're just absolutely great perennial look on their website and you can access it through the Arb Association website as well on the website do you have any form of how to start a business guide or anything like that um I'm not sure our website you may have noticed is quite large and unwieldy and we're in the process we're in the process of of reviewing uh, the website there's basically there's too much good stuff on there and it's going to be quite difficult to navigate around it um, I'm not sure if that stuff is on there, but it's certainly something we'd be interested in looking to produce. As you said, when people start out yeah. in the profession, they need that guidance. They don't necessarily know where to go, and we, we would love to be able to help out if we could. Because yeah, like, things that every contractor should have but don't have, a, like you, I speak to business, go, what are your terms and conditions for working with that customer? Mm-hmm. And they look at me and go, why do I need terms and conditions? Because you're a business. Yeah. When you download an app on your phone, you've signed some form of terms yeah. and conditions for it. It goes completely over the head. And I've, I'd love to be able to do it, but I don't know where it would be able to build that basic resource database as such, which I did get. I'm sure I got my method statements and risk assessments. It would have either been from one of the well-known forums or from the Arb Association yeah, itself. Yeah, definitely some of that on there. Yeah. I mean, I mean what I, I'll give you an example of what we're doing as well, which I'm hoping is going to be able to help our members. Um, we mentioned mental health already, so we haven't previously had a mental health policy. And we are writing a mental health policy that we want to have in place for the association, for our volunteers, for our, for our staff team. But when we've done that, what we want to do is put that on the website and make it available in a format so that anyone else out there yeah. can just basically take our mental health policy and put their name on the top. Not selling it, not not trying to make money, but just giving it away. Yeah. Because we've got to produce this stuff anyway, and we want to produce this stuff. So there's a lot of businesses out there, whether they're established businesses or new businesses, who may well want a mental health policy, just to pick one at random, uh, but who either don't have the know-how or the resources yeah. or the time to do it. So let's start producing the stuff that we need anyway and making it available online so that everybody can access it and then there's no excuse for them not to have one. Awesome. Right, we're going to questions from the floor. So before every episode, follow us on Instagram, at all things of, we say, what would you like us to ask the next guest? And we've got 10, 15 questions, some of them kind of cross over. Um, so questions are... What is the most common reason businesses do not get approved? So businesses who've gone for accreditation yes, yeah. who don't... Oh, well, I mean, I don't know what the most common reason is, but essentially it will be either because your health and safety practices don't meet the requirements or because your tree work doesn't meet the requirements. Um, we try not just to sort of say no you failed, you know, we try and say, well, these are the areas on which you need to work. Uh, like I said, this is about raising standards. This is, and in some ways, that's almost a, it's quite a good thing in a way, you know, if, if a business says we want to go for our approved contractor and this is what we do, and then it's reviewed and looked at and we say, well, actually, these bits here you need to tweak. Yeah. And then they, they tweak those bits, they lift up that bit they need and they become our approved. In some ways, that's kind of the point. Yeah. That's the point of the scheme. That is a company that has raised its standards to meet the bar that we need to become approved. So 
I think that the reason for not getting on there is simply because they haven't met the required standards somewhere, but we want to work with them to get them over that line. Have you ever had to remove anyone from the scheme? Um, we have uh, had to remove people from the scheme, yes. Yeah, simple as that. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't mind expanding. I won't give individual cases, but what I would say, the if the scheme is going to be taken seriously and if we're going to have integrity in the scheme, then we need to make sure that we keep people following the yeah. standards they need to follow. Otherwise, the whole thing becomes pointless. Otherwise, people don't have confidence in the scheme. Otherwise, people just say, well, what's the, what's the point? So we have uh, the scheme handbook, which kind of contains the rules. We've got a complaints procedure, which is very robust. And we are committed to making sure that if people breach the rules or if breach, people breach the code of conduct and ethics, that they will be investigated. And if they don't meet the standards, then they will be removed from the scheme. Yeah, that's strange enough. That was going to be my next question. Well, this um, one of our followers' next question: Can people report bad work done by an AA member, and will you investigate? Yes. Yeah. So we have um, we've got a complaints procedure. It's uh, it's on the website. Um, it applies to all of our members. It applies to our approved contractors. It applies to our registered consultants. Essentially, the 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 main remit of our complaints procedure is our code of conduct and ethics. So, if people breach that code of conduct and ethics, or if people think they've breached the code, then they can submit a complaint through the complaints procedure. Um, but also, if there's if they're seeing wrongdoing more generally, then yes, they can make a complaint. Obviously, I would say some sometimes the stuff we get told about is kind of health and safety stuff. Yeah. If you've got an urgent health and safety thing, health and safety executive would be good to speak to, the police in some cases. Yeah. But we take every complaint we receive extremely seriously. Why do you only vet one team in larger companies leaving room for poor work? I think there there is a case to say that we should maybe look at more than one team. It's, it, a lot of it is to do with resources as well. Yep. It, it can If you've got a large company, you're doing a two, three-day audit. There's a lot of stuff to look at. We're getting assessors to, to go and look at everything. There's only so much they can go and check. They can't go and check absolutely every individual. Um, but I think we're not just assessing the contractor based on the tree work we see on the day. Obviously, we are looking at the tree work on the day, and that is part of the assessment. But what we're looking is to see that they are demonstrating the qualities and the values and the standards that their paperwork shows, that their site visit and that their depot visit has shown. So, you know, you hear a lot about, oh, but they might just get ringers in or whatever and in for the day climbing and, and, and they'll sort of trick you. Well, that is possible. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to tell you that that's never going to happen because it's quite difficult to police that. But our assessors hopefully won't just be taken in by that one day because they're also looking at all the paperwork. They're looking at all the, um, you know, all the, that detail that happens either in the desktop audit or the stuff they look at when they go into the depot. And our assessors aren't stupid. They're experienced and they're knowledgeable and they can kind of link up yeah. what they're seeing there <laughs> with what they're seeing down here. And those two things should be tallying up. Yeah. Everyone tries to pull the wall over everyone's eyes at least once. Um, do you get work from being approved? Does who? Oh, yes, do, do do contractors get work? Yeah, from? sorry. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to quantify. I think. Uh, I think it's difficult. You know, you'd almost need a contractor who's had a certain uh, amount of work over a period of time and then become approved and has then either got yeah. more or less or the same, and you need to kind of replicate that. So it's quite difficult. 
My suggestion would be yes. I think you, you would get more work from being uh, approved. If only because, as I've said, there are tree officers all over the country and there are people all over the country who direct people to uh, the approved contractor directory. Yeah. So I, sh- I can only imagine that does generate work, yes, but how much it generates, I don't know. And it's really important, again, yeah. it shouldn't just be about the work. It would be really disappointing if you had an approved contractor who said, well, we were approved because we wanted to get all these jobs and we got those jobs so now we don't need to be approved so we're just going to drop off because whilst getting the jobs is certainly part of it it's also about those standards it's about testing yourself it's about checking yourself it's about a badge of honour and we hope that people continue regardless of that how many people leave the scheme each year how many people leave each year again I could find details for you and would happily share all the statistics with you um, the main reason that people leave the scheme, in, in my experience, from what I understand, is essentially because they've retired or they've sold their business. We don't have that many people leaving the scheme because they go, I don't like the scheme anymore. Um, but you know, there will be some. Yeah. I guess it's a lot of effort to get on the scheme. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of time. It's a big commitment. And if you're doing that year on year on year, then it, you know, to, to drop off that, it would probably be quite a, a big thing you know but um yeah we will certainly will do some people from that is there a typical cost or an estimated cost what it would be for a business to go down the process oh well it varies <laughs> hugely based on the size of the company yeah. so that the rates are mainly based on whether you're a sort of small medium or large company and it also like i say it isn't just about what you're paying on the day to be looked at most businesses are going to have to invest in getting to the standard they need to get to as well. So it's going to vary massively depending on the company itself and the, the size. But there's price lists and everything available on the website if you want the detail of that. Awesome. Has DAA written to the UK government with regards to red diesel? Yes. Now, I know we've spoken that earlier, so the answer to that one is just yes. Yeah, so, and, uh, and there is a meeting. Um, we've written, we wrote to HMRC, we've written to DEFRA, we've written to the Secretary of State, Earth Environment, we've spoken to our local MP and we've now got a meeting that I think is at the end of April is the plan with the Treasury to discuss the concerns. What are your thoughts on theft within the industry and is the AA doing anything about it? I mean, we are getting reports from time to time about theft, about people having their kit and their vehicles nicked. Uh, It's really bad. When that happens, I mean, it's just absolutely terrible. In terms of RVAA doing enough about it, it, there's maybe a limit to what we can do. We would recommend that people obviously have all their stuff insured. We recommend all the obvious stuff that people know about locking them all up safely, about getting them marked up, um, you know, as best you can. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what we could do about it. If anyone out there is thinking, why don't you do this and that would help, then again, John at trees.org.uk, let me know and we can look into it because it's a, we, we don't want, we obviously don't want that happening. Theft is bad. Yeah. That is a, a, you can take that statement from the Arp Association, we don't like theft. And the last, last question, I've not got it written down, but I've just remembered it. Um, I can't remember who asked me to ask it to you, but I, I really like the idea. Say I'm a freelance climber, so I work between different companies, and I want to get approved status. Do I have to be a contractor or is there like, and individual level status that I could take around with me as such? Well, as you know, there's no sort of individual level uh, approved contractor 
scheme, no. Um, there has been talk of it in the past. I think there is uh, value in the idea of having individuals accredited instead of having companies accredited. I think it will get around a lot of the stuff you've talked about with why do you only look at one team and all that kind of thing, because you could see. Uh, the problem, I guess, is, is and probably the reason it doesn't exist, <coughs> is the scale of the challenge to actually set that up. Um, you know, you and I could sit down today and, and work out exactly how that scheme should look, and then we could get it over to the marketing team and start promoting it early next week. How long would it be until we got to the point where that was commonly bought into? Yeah. You know, uh, the AC scheme has been going what twenty five years or so. Uh, we're not there on the scheme yet, and it's easier to do it with companies than it is to do it with individuals. Um, but I still think there is there is space for that, and it's something we definitely consider getting involved in. But I think it's probably more complicated than people think it is, because yeah. until you know, until you get to that tipping point where there's enough people out there with that accreditation, so that employers can start demanding that accreditation, until you get to that massive numbers, it can take a long time to get there before it all sort of starts building itself. Right, so I've remembered it this time. So this is the little brown book. So the idea with the little brown book is the guest on the previous podcast gets to ask the next guest on the podcast a question, mm -hmm. but the previous guest doesn't know who the next guest is. Yep. And I haven't even looked at what the question is. I've had, <laughs> I've had it for about about two weeks. I don't even know which one it is. So I'm going to have to quickly find it. Uh, oh, it's an easy one, this is. So this one's from Adam Hope, uh, which is the last podcast, strangely enough. Where do you see the industry in 10 years' time? I hope that in 10 years' time, we have got an industry that is far better understood and respected. And I hope in 10 years' time, we've got more people coming into the industry. I hope that those more people are more representative of the communities they serve. I hope that... Um, yeah, we're respected by the public, by the politicians, by other industries and other professions, and that people know what our culture is. Yeah. They don't just write us off as, oh, you, you do trees. Yeah. Oh, um, the tree guys have turned up The again. tree guys have turned up, yeah. <laughs> I hope that we are moving to a point when actually we are given the respect and acknowledgement that our profession demands, because we do an incredibly important and complex job, no matter where, what part of our boar culture you work in. And I hope that in 10 years' time, we're starting to make some headway into getting that recognised. So, last one from at the Brown Book, from Ben Brooker from Subtrack. If you could change one key decision you have made in the last 12 months for your business, what would you change and why? Oh, I might need more than two minutes on that one. I've got to, I got to try and, uh, I got to try and think. It is one of those questions, isn't it? That catch you. Yeah, it is a difficult one, um, and I'm honestly really struggling. And that's not because I don't think there's any decisions I could have made differently. I'm just trying to pick one out. Um, I don't know. Maybe we could have done more to have asked our members and asked the profession with things like the coronavirus restrictions and all that sort of stuff, we could maybe have done more to check with them that the advice we were giving them was, was yeah. right, that it was workable. Uh, we, we put a lot of stuff together in a relatively short space of time and we did consult as widely as we could, but maybe we should, you know, we could always do more collaboration and asking questions and maybe we should have asked more about what do you need to, to deliver better for them. 
Brilliant, John. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for having us to come down. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thank you very much.